0: do you want of me? Get off my world. Get, world. Get off my world. Get off my world.
1: And I'm Joshua.
0: And you're listening to episode 45 of Get Off My World, a Doctor Who podcast brought to you by three guys who are probably older than you. It's a good bet. And we are talking about the classic series of Doctor Who and sometimes also the new series of Doctor Who because it's Doctor Who. Come on. (laughs) Uh, And we'd like to start everything off like we usually do with something we call temporal grace, which is just us taking a moment to say something positive
2: that we've heard recently
0: in the world of Doctor Who.
2: So do you have something, Pat? I do. Uh, I recently read, and this is usually Josh's ballywick here when we talk about upcoming Big Finish mm-hmm. stuff, but I'm going to step on his toes here and Ouch! <laughs> say that there was a, a press release from Big Finish not too terribly long ago that is talking about the upcoming fourth Doctor series. Series 7, apparently, for Big Finish. Now, I, I recommend you never read these sort of puff piece press releases because it says things like, I love Andrew's script, says producer David Richardson. <laughs> it takes certain elements from the robots of death and spins them off into an exciting and brand new direction, one that is full of twists and turns. <laughs> Listeners are in for a treat. Now, that is awful. The, uh, the
0: Superbox are all working in a sandwich <laughs> shop. It's amazing. <laughs>
2: Uh, but they, they they do seem to be leaning in towards some Fourth Doctor continuity. So there's a, a story called The Sons of Kaldor uh, with Doctor and Leela that is uh, kind of a semi-sequel or, or something like that to Robots, robots of Death. Uh, but anyway, the more to the point what I'm... Temporarily gracing out about <laughs> Is that There is something called The Age of Sutek <gasps> oh! Which has Not only rematched between the fourth Doctor and Sutek, but Gabriel Wolf Himself, the man With the golden voice, is coming back As Sutek himself Uh, Now last episode we did talk about One hit wonders that we would have liked uh, That we would like to see Recur on the new series And as impressive as he was He's not someone that I would necessarily Want to see come back mm-hmm. because then you get into this Joker territory of, well, n- no one's ever defeated. The Doctor mm-hmm. never wins if these guys keep coming back. Yeah. If the Mara is not totally destroyed or if Sutek was not destroyed. that So I don't... I'm a little ambivalent about about the Fourth Doctor going face-to-face against Sutek again. But it's got Gabriel Wolf, so hey, uh, we are, as we say, cautiously optimistic. <laughs> well, you know,
0: maybe, maybe if not bringing Sutek back some of the other Osirons, which have been you know, we're mentioned in, um, Pyramids of Mars.
2: That would also be fine. Mm-hmm. I believe this is actually Sutek, though.
1: But that would be cool. Yes. Yeah. So, My Temporal Grace is a callback to several episodes ago when we had Jeff Tidball on, and we talked about his Doctor Who game Time Clash, and he gave us copies of Time Clash, being a generous man, um... I'd like to report back that I have been thoroughly enjoying this game with my son, uh, Aaron. And um, I don't do a lot of tabletop games, um, and this feels like a really good introductory game. And as he mentioned on the podcast, they're relatively short rounds. So if you're as busy as I am watching Doctor Who (laughs) and recording podcasts, uh, and you only have 30 minutes at the end of the night, you can still... Play a, a kind of fun game with some strategy. Um, I mean, I'm really not good at games. <laughs> I mean, i we've played it four or five times, and I have yet to beat my son. <laughs> um, I am insisting on continuing to play as the Daleks until I've mastered them.
2: Surely, Josh, you have beaten your once. son many times <laughs> in the past, perhaps with a strop. <laughs>
1: Wow. (laughs) You're not going to trick me into confessing this on a podcast, guys.
0: But no, there's a lot to be said for tabletop games that you can finish in less than an hour. Yep. I think. I I keep thinking about wanting to do more games, but then it's always some ginormous undertaking game that, you know, where every move takes 15 minutes to plot out and everything. And
1: that can get tiring. Yeah, the instructions, you can read in 10 minutes and figure out how to play the game. And then you can layer on the strategy by playing it a couple times and realizing what you're doing absolutely wrong. But since it's a short game, you've invested, you know, 20 minutes in a round. So thank you, Jeff. I enjoyed it very much.
0: Uh, My wonderful functionalism is um, I'm quite behind on my TV watching. Everyone keeps saying, oh, there are these series you got to watch. And it's like, I know, I know, I'll get to it. And uh, given the nature of this podcast, I wind up watching a lot of Doctor Who when I could be watching I'd, any number of other things, you know, but, and I don't mean that as a knock on Jesus,
2: anything else? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, God, another, another reconstruction. Uh, 24
2: episode reconstruction. Uh,
0: but, but, uh, no, seriously, uh, I finally got around to watching um, the series Sense8. Mm-hmm. on on Netflix uh, and I'm just bringing it up because uh, Freema Agamem is in it
2: oh okay
0: and uh, she does a really wonderful job uh, somewhat appropriately for an actress who played a companion in the Russell T. Davies era her her role is someone's girlfriend (laughs) Uh, but she's really good in it and it's honestly one of the most touching relationships
1: I've ever seen in a TV show well, wow. uh, it's it's a uh, more touching than the tenth doctor and Martha. Yes, get out.
0: It, it it's a uh, she cried she's... in the rain. <laughs> Freema, I, I can't think of her character's name right now, of course, but but she's playing an American woman uh, who is in a a lesbian relationship with a with a trans woman, and it's honestly one of the more moving things uh, I've seen. It's it, I, I've really enjoyed Sense Eight. It's like the character stuff and the relationships are what keeps me watching to it. Like the the overarching plot of the the thing almost kind of gets in the way for me. But there's... The overwhelming emphasis of the show is on these relationships. And uh, I've just been really enjoying it. Neat. It's... uh Made by J. Michael Straczynski and the Wachowskis, and I admit, when I heard that matchup, I was like, "Oh God, I don't know."
2: Um, <laughs> they could really bring out the worst in each other.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, but I think they've actually brought out the best in each other. I think this is the—I think my favorite thing I've seen the Wachowskis do, and uh, J. Michael Straczynski, I like, but he does have a tendency towards uh, that kind of writing style where you go, "Hey, look how awesome this line is I just wrote. Look how quotable it is." He—he he isn't doing that though. And the Wachowskis are doing like crazy ass visuals. It's much more down to earth for the most part. So yeah, I like Sense8 and Freema Argument's in it. There you go. Well,
2: you've sold me. I'll 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 have to watch it. I'm still finishing up Leverage. Oh yeah. But Once that's done, we'll mm-hmm. we'll have some room. There's always room for leverage. <laughs> <laughs> the jello of shows. So for round two. Special Topics Dalek I believe Kelvin has a question for us The assorted panel Of Doctor Who experts Tonight Kelvin? Uh, Yes I was Wrong (laughs) Oh wait,
1: I'm sorry, I'll let you finish Yes,
0: uh, we're a little into the wine folks Thank you Um, I was thinking about the TARDIS itself Now, we all know that the Doctor Has a Type 40 TARDIS Yeah Yeah and occasionally, a different model of TARDIS will show up. Uh, usually, in the novels, famously in Alien Bodies, Marie was a Type 103 TARDIS. And that TARDIS had the capacity to actually be a person that walks around and interacts with people like uh, a person. So, I guess uh, my question is um, just like a general speculation of what you think other models of TARDIS would be like. <laughs> like earlier ones than the Type 40. And, you know, more advanced ones than the Type 40. And I actually wrote down some quick notes about some things that have been mentioned so far. Apparently, uh, the second Doctor was in a novel called Heart of TARDIS. Yep, by Dave Stone, I think. In that one, he encounters a Type 1 TARDIS.
2: What's that like? I haven't read it.
0: Uh, Apparently, um, I haven't read this either, but apparently they were considered extremely dangerous to pilot (laughs) and difficult. And had minds of their own, so they would, like... Tend to just go off and wander the universe on their own, <laughs>
1: <laughs> just disappear. It's like forgetting to tether your horse. And yeah, like... and even and so, weir- like even, the-
0: even weirder than that, there was like an, a predecessor to the TARDIS. It was something called the Machine, uh, which appeared in the novel Cold Fusion by Lance Parkin, which yeah. I, I believe has the fifth Doctor and the seventh Doctor. Yeah, mm-hmm. we'll be talking about it on a later show. That was something created by Omega, and it's like this giant tower that's like a mile tall. And in a weird, goofy reverse on the TARDIS, it's smaller on the inside. <laughs> and, the, and then there's another uh, second Doctor novel world game, which is very clearly built on the season six B hypothesis. Yep. Uh, where the Time Lords gave him access to a Type ninety seven TARDIS, which the second Doctor hated because it didn't have telepathy circuits, so he didn't feel any bond with it. And the other Time Lords thought like this was bizarre and insufferably sentimental. That you would get attached to a TARDIS, so like these telepathic circuits were like
1: a, a dated thing now. That's really interesting because you would think the reverse.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, like like it wasn't it wasn't healthy to get. Mentally connected to a TARDIS.
1: It's always, it was like a, a safety addition.
2: It's like moving from a horse to a yeah.
0: automobile, right? It's like, you, like, you don't it, get attached to your automobile. You get, this, you get this low fat TARDIS <laughs> <laughs> yeah. with, with lower sodium.
2: <laughs> I can add three more things that come to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is, again, a Lawrence Miles novel, the novel Interference, and the books that follow from that. The human woman compassion, Mm -hmm. turns into a TARDIS because of the telepathic circuit's in the Doctor's TARDIS. And or, doesn't uh, Romana mates her with other TARDISes? Romana is trying to. That's yeah. A, in, in yeah, yeah, we're getting deep in the weeds here, yeah. but uh, yeah, in anticipation of the time war that they know is coming, uh, Romana and the High Council send out people to try to kidnap her so she can be forcibly mated with TARDISes to create the type 100 pluses mm-hmm. that Homunculate uh, was piloting in alien bodies. But oh boy, oh yeah, yeah now we're getting and, into it. And 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 by the, the way, TARDISes is, are exactly. Separate
1: time war from the TV time war. Yeah, this has nothing to do with a dollar. Later regeneration of Ramon. less less compassionate, um, compassionate and moral version. Excuse the pun.
0: For those of you wondering what the heck we're talking about, yes, Tardis is apparently mate. There are things called Bowl Tardises, which are apparently just there to create more Tardises. It's (laughs) it's a living. (laughs) I, I, I I I find that dimension
2: a little strange. In the comics, there was also a character called Shade. Yeah. Uh, It was very interesting. It was the Steve Parkhouse uh, era, Tides of Time. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about this on a later podcast. But uh, he was a mysterious character that would sometimes appear just as someone's shadow. Mm -hmm. Like he would be the doctor's shadow and he would just be in the panel, but you wouldn't necessarily notice him and the characters there wouldn't notice him he could translate himself through time and space by crossing his arms on his chest he had a uh, a, a black sphere for his for a head mm-hmm. he was dressed all in black and he had a uh, ray gun for his right hand or at least could um, had a ray gun that would uh, encapsulate his right hand turned out to be a projection of the matrix Itself. So at one point, the elders of the Matrix, Rassilon and some of the rest of them, Shade appeared in front of them and they took his head off. <laughs> And put it down and consulted around it. So he was an emanation of the Matrix who was also a living being who was also a TARDIS and could travel through time and space. He was the coolest, you guys. (laughs) Boy, when I was 12, this was amazing to me.
0: Those 70s and 80s era Doctor Who comics. like Steve Parkhouse was great,
2: man. Serious weed, I think, was being smoked. There. I, we're going have a we're gonna have some long yeah. discussion about yeah. that era of the
1: comic. Shade books. does show up in a one-off big finish, of course. Single he does. disc, sorry.
2: That's a wonderful. The <laughs> yeah, final thing I'll, I'll I'll say, and then I'll shut up, Josh, so you can chime in. Is we can't forget. Iris Wildtime's Double Decker Bus. Yeah. Iris Wildtime, the camp parody version of The Doctor created by Paul Mars for the novels and then later in the Big Finish audios, uh, vocalized by Katie Manning, of course. Uh, She has gone through some different regenerations, but mostly she exists as someone who claims to have done all of The Doctor stories in this bizarre, like, not at all accurate way and she travels around in time and space with various young hot men in a double-decker bus that is a TARDIS that is exactly the same size on the inside as it is on the outside so at one point when the third doctor and Joe come onto the bus, Joe is just astonished and she's like, but it's exactly the same size on the inside as it is on the outside
0: that's pretty great. But what do you what do you think like a more advanced Tardis? Hey, would getting be back
2: like? to your actual question, <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> I mean, we would of just reminiscing about cool Tardises we've known. <laughs> T-
2: Tardises we have known.
1: Yeah, it seems like the technology should get simpler. Yeah. Ones that drive themselves, like our yeah, own yeah. technology. So there should be, and no there'd be minimal. Vehicles,
2: right? It should be more like Rivers or, or Jack's little bracelets yeah. or the, the from Genesis of the Daleks. You yeah. can, just like, psh, can just say, let's go from here to there like yeah. Shade does.
1: Or even the Time Lord in Terror of the Autons that we see just mm-hmm. pops into existence mm-hmm. and then disappears. I don't always see the benefits of a time machine, although it does occasionally serve as actual protection. Camouflage—a place to keep your crap. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, th- I think it's the camouflage aspect of the TARDIS that tells you how they are—they were intended for use. Mm-hmm. Was that a early invention? A later invention? Probably a later one, as they visited places. Yeah. And never-
0: <laughs> I suppose earlier TARDISes couldn't really. Um, well, I could—I could make my TARDIS look like a box <laughs> or something, you know, like
1: it, as opposed to you know some more elaborate shape. And my assumption is, kind of like computers on Earth, is that Mm -hmm. the original TARDISes would be huge. Mm -hmm. Their outside would more match their interior dimensions, and that that was some sort of
2: advancement in
1: technology. It seems like TARDISes need things like, you know,
0: captive black holes
1: or something to work. It's really hard to go backwards and divorce your knowledge of Doctor Who and, and think about the bigger on the inside of what practical applications that has there's a certain amount of practicality to operating space and some storerooms, yeah. but the enormity of the TARDIS, yeah. like like what is the practicality of how amazingly huge it is? On the I, inside? Yeah,
0: I, I was thinking of you know for one uh, random Doctor Who story I would write someday, maybe don't steal this. Um, <laughs> you know, the Doctor running into like an earlier TARDIS with like really strong telepathic circuits where like you're supposed to pilot it with your mind but, like, that got abandoned because it didn't work right, resulting in whatever kind of Doctor who disaster, you know? Yeah. So, like, that could be, you know, like, maybe this this Type 97 that the second Doctor hated, you know? Like, yeah, it was just too dangerous to, to have, like, a, a telepathically controlled TARDIS.
2: I'm going to steal that, Kelvin.
0: Oh, of course you are. <laughs> or maybe there was, like, an earlier TARDIS that you had to crank
1: <laughs> <laughs> <bit> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this this <laughs> old silent film TARDIS. Really, really fast. <laughs> and then we'd go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then Laurel and Hardy would drive it into a giant mud puddle and it was. <laughs> oh <my> God.
2: <laughs> All right. And this week, The Randomizer has come up with. The Power of the Daleks. Now, yes. this is this is just two adventures after the last adventure that we talked about, which was the Smugglers, mm-hmm. the penultimate First Doctor mm-hmm. episode. This is the first Second Doctor episode. Yep. It still has been in Polly, uh, but now is the intro for Pat Troughton. Mm-hmm. It's directed by Christopher Barry, written by. David Whitaker and apparently an uncredited Dennis Spooner. These are all old Doctor Who fans um, mm-hmm. maintaining the transition. Uh, and it's from 1966. It's a six-episode story. It's recent, None of the episodes exist, I should say, mm-hmm. in uh, their visual form. It's, but it's recently been put out on DVD and in other media in an animated form, both color and black and white. And uh, I chose to watch it in color, because why not? But uh, I'd happily watch it in black
1: and white. I think the black and, and white well. is superior. I watched the first episode in color, and I switched, and I got far more into it in the black and white. Just, it felt more authentic. I think the color's great to have.
2: Yeah, dipping in, it, it seemed more moody. Mm-hmm. Um, I just kind of committed to the color. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, this is... A story that I last read the Target novelization of probably 30 years ago. So I remembered very little of this story. I was very young when I read it. And I guess somehow it just passed me by how highly regarded it is because I loved it. And I felt like one of those stupid moments where it's like, hey, have you guys heard of Power of the Daleks? It's awesome. Um, So I thoroughly enjoyed it.
2: I I was watching the first two episodes. I thought, oh, this is really, really good. I'm sure that this is going to just fail before the end because that's sort of a lot of what happens. (laughs) It's six parts. It's reasonable to expect. And it does dip. Yeah. Uh, No question about it. But I think this is incredibly strong. I think it's very well written. It's very well constructed, which Mm -hmm. is something that Doctor Who is not necessarily very good at. It has lots of parts that interact uh, and are convincing on their own terms. And then when they, uh, when they spark off against one another, like the characters or the, the motivations of the characters or what the Daleks are trying to do, it, it escalates the situation in a very believable way. Mm-hmm.
1: There's always another reveal. There's always uh, someone else stabbing someone else in the back. And it, it goes back to your point from a couple podcasts ago when we were talking about Planet of Evil. All future humans suck because <laughs> this is definitely one where everyone is motivated by petty greed and power grabs.
2: They totally suck. Yeah, <laughs> we, let's, let's give the briefest of overviews for people who haven't seen it of what the story is. Right, mm-hmm. it's the planet Vulcan. It's a mining colony because there's always a mining colony. And everyone can
0: do the mind touch and the nerve pinch. But <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> it had to be said. We had to make that joke because it came because literally this came out at just about exactly the same time as Star Trek debuted. Oh, you Spock! It's just an amusing coincidence, and I'm very
1: tickled by it. <laughs> He's literally tickling himself.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the uh, the Doctor Ben and Polly arrive. Uh, there's been a murder, and so the Doctor takes the place of the, the inspector from Earth, and so that's his that's his in that's his psychic paper for this episode. That's why people want to talk to him at all. Mm-hmm. There's a strange workers um rebellion thing that's uh, that's germinating but we don't really know what the grievances mm-hmm. are uh there's lots of proto fascists in the government mm-hmm. and and then of course there's a dalek ship that has uh has crashed and one of the scientists revives one of the daleks and eventually that means that the daleks build a whole lot of other daleks and then uh, shenanigans ensue <laughs> Uh, So that's that's briefly the the scenario right there. But it's all, although it sounds kind of ho-hum or whatever, this is probably the first time or one of the first times that we've seen this sort of slow but persistent escalation in the threat over and over and over again. It's not a base under siege thing because the Daleks don't exist as... An external force that people need to defend against, they're actually building from the inside, as well as um, there's a political problem from the inside where Mm -hmm. uh, people are trying to use the new Dalek force for their own political gain. Without, of course, understanding as we do, as sophisticated mm-hmm. 21st century people <laughs> do, that, like, oh, no, no, you don't want to do anything with
1: oh, the Daleks. At all. And partly we understand it because this is a real template for future Dalek stories or the Dalek not Dalek story that we will see a, a lot, particularly in spin off materials, but even in David Whitaker's next story, Evil of Daleks, when we have the human factor and the, the, the friendly, playful Dalek. Where we get you know creeped out by a Dalek not behaving as we think a Dalek should, uh, victory of the Daleks uh, in the new series totally plays on this. Yep. And and the crashed Dalek and not knowing what it is and what its uh, destructive potential is is the whole basis of Dalek Robert Shearman's script for the new series. So uh, there's a lot, <laughs> a lot that is introduced here. The other thing that's impressive about the story to me is that if you remove all the nerdy doctor who firsts from it, it's Patrick Chowton's first episode, all the first appearance of the recorder, the first appearance of his 500 year diary. It's the first blank of the Daleks title episode. It's still just a great story because there's a lot of like historically significant Doctor Who stories like that, where the story isn't that great it's It's interesting
0: to me how they don't really introduce the second doctor. So much there isn't like really any moment where, like, like, like he almost completely ignores Ben and Polly mm-hmm. and, and just sort of goes through the trunk and finds an old coat to put on and, and like, like, doesn't really explain
2: anything that's happened. To I, Terry. Just, I love how bold that is, yeah, and it reflects, I think, probably how the audience is feeling too. Because Ben and Polly accept this fact of regeneration or renewal. I think he calls it at different rates. Mm-hmm. Like Polly's pretty much on board right away. Okay, yes, you're the doctor. I I get it. And Ben's like, no, I don't. I ben, don't think so. Ben I,
1: is typically very angry. <laughs> yeah,
2: and why wouldn't he be? Yeah. It's like who, what, who are you? What hell is going on is here? Ben is like the super
0: skeptical one, and, and Polly was like, for, for as much crap as Polly gets about like being sort of this terrible female stereotype of the era like she's like the voice of reason so often and does she
2: not have more personality would you just not like want to be with Polly more often than most of the rest of these like oh yeah I like you Mm -hmm. I get you you know we can hang out and
1: and talk about how the doctor's being weird it's a great scene it's an interesting scene again as an experiment in again, divorcing yourself from the history of Doctor Who because I watched the first episode with my son and we were immediately like, oh, wow, it's like post-regenerative trauma. And they're like, no, they hadn't come up with that idea. This, I think, the way Patrick Troughton is acting, they were just like, hmm, let's see, what if the doctor acted like this? I mean, they're just literally figuring this out. Yeah. And we're retroactively applying any of that to that scene. Uh, but he's very odd, even for Patrick Cotton in, in those opening scenes. Uh, I guess he's childish and eccentric, But during the whole episode, he has yet to develop the sort of warmth that will also become characteristic of his performance. And I don't know how much of that is the animation, which is hard to capture that. Yeah. He's not as panicky as the second
0: Doctor is in some stories.
2: Yeah. An interesting mental experiment, which I haven't gone through Mm -hmm. yet, is to think, like, what if William Hartnell was playing this role? had it been written for him, would he be doing the same things that the Patrick Troughton doctor would be doing? He certainly wouldn't be trying to get out of the the cell in the same way with the recorder and the water glasses. Yeah, it's
0: like he doesn't explain what he's doing. He's just kind of doing this recorder and water glass thing and and he he makes no effort to explain what he's doing.
2: Yeah, so there's a like a literary difference between the two of yes. them right from the beginning. I mean,
1: probably one of the strongest differences. I mean and that is such a crazy bold choice to make at that point. You're going to change actors. You're not going to provide the audience anything really. Yeah. Like Kelvin says he's not explaining any of his actions and he's merely pushing everybody's buttons and he's really, I mean I think at one point like Ben's about to like I will cram that recorder up your ass buddy. (laughs) He gets so mad about the recorder and it is really annoying He just gets really excited with a bowl of fruit Yeah (laughs) So they go out of their way instead of to reassure viewers that, oh, this is the Doctor, to make them go, who is this guy?
0: I guess one thing I found interesting was the whole rebellion subplot. Yeah, what are they rebelling against? What are they rebelling against? You know, because Hensel is honestly one of the more... Sensible political leaders you ever we've ever seen in
1: Doctor Who. I mean, yep. he, nothing he does is inappropriate or. I don't know if it's explicit, but yeah. I thought there was a suggestion that that woman did more than infiltrate the rebellion. That she kind of helped to create a group of people that could help take over the governorship.
2: Yeah, it does seem like there. Um, there was a provocative of- agents provocateur, um, although. To be fair, they seem, like, fairly fairly savvy. They know... The rebels have a very immediate and clear understanding that the Daleks are way too effing dangerous yeah, to is. mess with. I'm like, oh, no, I don't think we want anything to do with that.
0: Yeah. I, I uh, think Lesterson is one of the most insane people ever in Doctor Who.
2: I'm I mean, going to light up the Daleks!
0: He's so enraptured with the Daleks and, and like, giddy about him. Like, oh, let's just... Turn them on. What could go wrong? You know, and then, and then he, he he gets so horrified, and he turns into like this weird. The era of mankind is over. You even know? tries
2: to talk like a Dalek. Yeah, I gave you life.
0: Lesterson is out of his damn mind. He's I mean, great. What a he, great he's character. He's
2: really
1: unbalanced. Yeah. He even dies crazy, mm-hmm. right? Because they do that weird shot where they shoot him, and at first I went, "Oh, did he rig a force field or something?" Because he stands there, and then he kind of slowly, and just <laughs> slowly collapses <laughs> yeah. to the ground. But it's a it's a fun trajectory to watch. Mm -hmm. It's a bit over the top. It's pretty over uh, the top. It's Doctor Who, so I mean that's what and probably the result
2: of a bad uh, director. Like oh oh wait, you should fall down now. (laughs) This is a treasure trove of riches. This story, Uh, I think it's (laughs) wonderful. Everything about the Daleks themselves is great. Uh, I oh yes, uh, Kelvin. Hates me now. No, 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 no. The, the, the Daleks are great, except
0: I don't understand what the hell's up with their ship. It, it, it seems to be like a TARDIS. It's the, pretty it, big. The inside it, yeah. is gigantic, but it seems to also fit into Lesterson's lab.
2: But you know what? They established that back in the chase. You remember that they had the time machine? That was bigger on the inside than it was on the outside, too. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, and there's no indication that this is a time machine, but, it's of course, it's at least partially non-functional. Mm-hmm. So, uh Normally, I would say, yes, you're right. But Mm -hmm. here, I'm like, no, they they addressed that bull (laughs) earlier on. (laughs) There's a whole assembly line in there. The assembly line of the Daleks is wonderful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're just like, oh, here's a Dalek toy. (laughs) There's like 50 Dalek toys. It almost seems like a... a
0: a weird Long John Silver's or something, because they like scoop the <laughs>
2: <laughs> out of the like deep, the deep it's fryer. Get out of
0: a deep fryer, like yeah. oh, let's scoop another Dalek brain <laughs> out of here and stick it, the... put the glint on it, send it off. Here's your hush puppy, sir. <laughs> because it looked, it looked like a deep fryer thing. <laughs> just, that was like all I could think I could think of.
2: I, of course, also love the fact that when they're denuded of their guns, they're just so subservient. <laughs> kind of, they're like Uriah Heap, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I am your servant. Whatever. The the hilarious exchange, There's the Dalek brings in a glass of water. Do I bring liquid for the visitors? <laughs> and then there's a little scene and then the Dalek Intrudes again. Have you finished your liquid?
0: <laughs> it almost seems to imply that Slays they, they, they do, It seems to imply that Daleks have no need for water.
2: No right. Yeah, like yeah, like they, they this don't
0: even is quite, liquid and They don't even sense. quite
1: understand what this. Why, <laughs> they have no idea how this. to serve humans, yeah. and they are puzzled by humans. There is an actual great line in there where uh, a Dalek asks why do humans kill other humans? Why do
2: human beings kill human beings? And it's
1: a nice twist because at that time we haven't seen like the eighties Dalek factions where they fight each uh-huh. other. It's a nice twist where suddenly you see that there's something evil that humans do that Daleks
2: don't. It works as a plot point, too. At the end of episode 5, the Daleks consult with each other, and they are wise enough to just hang out and wait until the humans Mm -hmm. kill each other. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, they're eventually, I mean, we're Daleks, we have to and we have to jump the gun here, yeah, and we're, we're going to go kill them too. Can't wait any longer. Daleks <laughs> <laughs> yeah. conquer and destroy. I think the last time we saw the Daleks was in the Daleks Master Plan, mm-hmm. if we're, I remember. We had a little hint yeah. of their
1: conniving capabilities, but more like a politician.
2: Right. Here, they're devious. And
1: they savor it.
2: You don't... You don't... But we are your friends.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like, the modern conception of Daleks is more like just... Vicious killing machines and, and here they actually insane shouty killing machines. Yeah, and here they actually plan and things. Mm-hmm. But um please don't misunderstand me. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed this story a great deal.
1: But I just get to it, Calvin. <laughs> Mercury swamps. Oh, don't start this thing. <laughs> Mercury's boiling. Don't go, don't go of Mr. Mercury. Science on us.
0: You're They're, just walking by like, oh what's that? oh, Mercury fooms. Refreshing, you know. (laughs) I just mercury swamps in a way that's almost as almost weirder than an ice volcano.
1: How do we know it's an alien planet if it doesn't have some <laughs> weird ass crap like that? I mean, they,
0: could, they could have just said it was like mud pots, you know, like in, in, oh, uh, oh
1: yeah, mud, uh, that's pots. evocative,
2: that's really scary, yeah, well, like that's, like, that's you know, science, fiction-y. National Park. oh, yeah. yeah, Yellowstone, that's where I want to meet the Daleks Calvin. <laughs> that's a pretty
0: alien landscape. I mean, you know, it's not like mud pots are all over the goddamn earth.
2: <laughs> oh, look, it's Yogi Bear meeting the Daleks with the mud pots, <laughs> the bear has our our picnic basket we'll look up, we'll the Daleks
0: are after us
1: mm. anyway Pat now that we've dismissed Kelvin's <laughs> <laughs> critique entirely we can continue with our discussion <laughs>
2: <laughs> the Daleks will be twice as useful <laughs> yes I love these, like I got too excited
1: <laughs> it's so good yeah, this no, is, it's, it's this is my new favorite Dalek story. It's gotta wow. be.
2: You know, Carrie always says, Oh, the poor Daleks are so misunderstood, especially <laughs> in a story like this, you know, where you can see their sort of side and their compassionate elements and <laughs> but I always point out that they're <laughs> ruthless s- killing psychopathic racist mass <laughs> murderers and we shouldn't normalize them. <laughs> And this is an ongoing discussion in our household. <laughs> oh, dear.
1: This this story didn't help that discussion, I would assume, because they are kind of adorable in their deviousness. I mean, and that's interesting, too, because up to this point... They're not
2: less likable than the humans
1: in this story. It's, it's true. But up to this point, the Daleks in all the stories uh, expound upon their plans. Right, we have scenes in their control rooms with that hum in the background, and mm-hmm. they say, "We are going to do this, and then we are going to do this." Excellent, let's do it. And and here, you actually know the Daleks are up to something, mm-hmm. but you don't know what. And I think that's brand new to this Dalek story, yeah.
2: and not one that we see a lot of in the future either. No. So, yeah, I, I'm with you, Josh. I I love Power of the Daleks. This is easily in my top two or three favorite Dalek stories. If not, the very top. Kelvin is silent. <laughs> no, I, I,
0: I... I've never tried to like uh, create a personal ranking of Dalek stories, oddly enough. I, Ooh, I,
2: I'm just doing it on the fly, Kelvin. <laughs> I, I would still
0: go with Genesis of the Daleks as Dalek, is my favorite Dalek story, but... Um, I won't argue with that. But this is a, a, a remarkable thing to have. and <laughs>
2: Something that happened.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I was going to say, I don't know, like like it had just been discovered out of nothing. You know, It's like, well, we knew what the story was. We just haven't had a reconstruction of it this elaborate.
1: I also think the criticism of the animation was a little too harsh. I've read a lot of animosity toward it. It's crude, but... I think part of the problem is the first couple episodes are a little awkward because they are scenes that rely on actor performances um, yeah. there's subtle nuance like when they're reacting to the doctor's regeneration um, and you're cutting from the doctor's face to Ben and Polly and it's all non-verbal reactions so it yeah. feels a little clunkier uh, once the actual narrative engine is running on action later yeah. in the story um, it looks a lot better and the animation for the Dalek assembly line is really gorgeous That's good. Yeah. yeah
0: I think part of the problem is like for the doctor's resting face they have him have that like second doctory kind of slightly boozy smile. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh I
1: know. At at times Oh wait, you didn't like it.
0: <laughs> 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 Admittedly he's playing the fool a lot. Mm-hmm. But there's times when he comes off, like, really airheaded just because mm-hmm. of he has that kind of, like, yeah. smile. Yeah. So I kind of wish they had yeah. done more with the facial features. But
1: the reality is the BBC is not going to pay for more expensive animation. No. And this is so much better, to me, than watching Reconstructions. Yeah.
0: It is. Um, they overdid it with The Reign of Terror, where I think they tried too hard to have too elaborate man, uh, an animation, I think.
1: And I really got, like The Reign And of it got terror. kind of weird. To Watch for me sometimes, but um, it's the most detailed animation I think yeah. they've used so far, and I think that's partly why some people were critical of this because there are yeah. a lot of people, at least the reviews I've read, who really loved it. I,
0: I liked terror. the, I remember really liking the animation in The Invasion,
1: it was pretty simplistic. It was the first one they did, but yeah. It, um, it was again very atmospheric, but it was atmospheric, yeah.
0: yeah. Final thoughts you should watch Power of the Daleks.
1: Yeah, I, I want to go home do and this. watch it again. That's how much I enjoyed it. <laughs> and I've watched a lot of Doctor Who in the last forty-eight hours. I actually,
2: I actually do too. Like, I, I want to watch the black and white one now. I know it was necessary that we engage someone to assist Rose, but do you think this new girl will work out? She does seem a little... rustic. I
0: understand what you mean, but she comes at the highest recommendation from Mr... David Ross of Scarrow Gardens, Piccadilly.
2: All right, but... Do tell Hudson to keep her away from James, will you? You know how he can be with the servants.
0: A very good idea, Marjorie. Can't be too careful with these modern girls.
1: Rose, can I speak to you in confidence for a moment?
2: Of course, Dolly. What is it? It
1: is the new man who takes care of the master's automobile, Mr. Watkins.
2: By the way, he speaks to me... I believe he has intentions in my direction. Oh, Dolly! And I believe I may have... Intentions in his. Dolly, why, you know perfectly well... That Lord Bellamy don't hold with any of that sort of business in his household. If him or Mr. Hudson found out, well... What would you do? Where would you go then? I have often longed to return
1: to the great Dalek Imperial Fleet... To fulfill my role the utter
2: extermination of the Time Lords? You and your Dalek Imperial fleet. If it's so wonderful, why did you ever resign your position there anyway? The Mavellan flanking
1: maneuver was successful, and our heavy artillery was captured and destroyed. When we activated the Time Destructor, we learned that the Doctor had sabotaged it, and both armies were turned to dust in moments.
0: Only a small number of Daleks survived. Cast adrift in the Time Vortex, with no transportation back, And only our incandescent hatred for company! Hush, Dolly. Here comes Mr. Hudson. Rose, Mrs. Bridges requires a wee bit of help in the kitchen. And, Dolly, don't you know it's time for Lady Marjorie's tea? Step to it
2: now. Yes, Mr. Hudson. Yes,
0: Earthling! Bind the stairs now. They're steep.
2: I confess, Dolly, that I wasn't convinced of your suitability, especially considering your apparent... Infirmities, but this tea is piping hot, and you didn't spill a drop. My hover unit, internal
1: gyroscope, and thermal regulator are all operating at
2: maximum efficiency. Well, that's very fine, I'm sure. Uh, you may clear away my things now. I obey. Dolly, before you go,
0: has there been any message from Lord Cuddingsworth? He was supposed to call me this afternoon to discuss some parliamentary business, but he has not arrived. He arrived?
2: I exterminated him? My goodness, why? His stubborn opposition
1: to the Indian Bill was undermining the Master's efforts to advance his career and gain supreme
0: power! So you killed him?
1: Instantly.
0: Well, good show, Dolly. I think you'll fit in here very well indeed. I am your servant. Servant. <laughs>
1: And now, round five, The Death Zone. And for today's episode, we are pitting two interesting Doctor Who stories against one another. The first is a Big Finish audio that was uh, recorded, I think, as a Doctor Who magazine giveaway. And it is a one-hour story called The Bailed Leopard and features no doctors. It features the fifth Doctor's Big Finish companion's Perry and Aramim, as well as the Seventh Doctor's companions Hex and Ace. Now we are pitting this story against another story from the modern series, uh, Time Heist, Twelfth uh, Doctor from a story from the eighth season, and we are pairing these because they are both crime heist stories. There aren't a lot of those in Doctor Who.
2: Uh, there are not. And I, I I gotta say up front that neither of these are quite the level of intricate heist stuff mm-hmm. that I'm I've been watching. Leverage. leverage I've been yes, talking about this. Right. The, like, as soon as you
1: mentioned Leverage, I went, mean, "Oh boy!" It's like
2: five seasons <laughs> of like complicated heist stuff, uh, or you know, Mission Impossible. That uh, yeah that level of thing. I, I don't mean that as a criticism in any way. Uh, of the two, Time Heist is more complex Mm -hmm. in the planning and the plotting. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's co-written by Stephen Moffat, and it has a bit of that Moffat thing about it, uh, which we'll get to a little bit more. The Veiled Leper is... uh, Veiled Leper. (laughs) That's a different, much more horrible heist story. Um,
0: I got his foot! (laughs) (laughs) This'll fit a pretty penny on the black market.
2: Too soon, Kelvin. Too soon. Uh, so The Veiled Leopard, uh, it's from 2006. Uh, it's written by Ian McLaughlin and Claire Bartlett. I don't know
1: who they are. Uh, Ian McLaughlin, I know, wrote the first Aramem story.
2: Yeah, and this is Aramim, not M-M. Eminem. Yes. Yeah. Which is a, a different story. Aramim
0: was an Egyptian princess who uh, traveled with the fifth
2: doctor in some audios. Yes. Uh, and here she is with Perry. Uh, so the structure of the Veiled Leopard is, it's a two-parter.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's Monte Carlo in 1966, which is awesome, yeah. by the way. Uh, and so the first episode is Perry and Aramem protecting a diamond that the sixth doctor has told them to protect. Mm-hmm. And there are various people out to steal it. for, it, But they don't know what the diamond is or what the purpose of, of their protection is. And... I, I have to say, there's an unusual amount of mm-hmm. dialogue about how sexily they're dressed. Yes. And how little coverage their dresses have. Mm-hmm. And I, I was slightly relieved to find that it was written by a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. which it somehow seemed a little less salacious yeah. than the dialogue. that <laughs> implies more good humored. But uh, we'll let that go and let our listeners' imagination yeah, go from, from where they I want. Yeah, from what I understand, it's some sort of
0: fancy dress party. And oddly enough, uh, Perry is dressed as, as an ancient Egyptian, and Aram, who's an actual ancient Egyptian, is dressed. I want to say like a Marie
2: Antoinette kind of outfit. Yes. Well, it wouldn't it wouldn't be fancy dress for her? No. She says that. yes. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that's episode one, mm-hmm. and they do their thing. And there's a woman in a in a cat burglar outfit, and there's some flirtiness, and then we rewind. And then we see Ace and Hex come in at the top of episode mm. two, and they actually know more of it in a Seventh Doctor way of like what the diamond is and what it's all about, and they've got their own plan for stealing it. And they have a they have a duplicate, and I'm just giving it all away. But uh, <laughs> it, it's it's hugely fun. I thought it was it's uh, kind of fun. You know, I thought it was really neat. Uh, the only thing that I kind of regret about it is that the two teams never meet. Mm-hmm. Except maybe like thirty seconds after the story ends. Yeah. Because every everything's wrapped up and they're like, Oh, I've got some other people we should really talk to and that, that would be the moment where our two different teams meet. Uh but I kind of I kind of wanted Perry and Ace and the rest of these guys to hang out and go do doo do <laughs> that that sort of it, It's very out. clearly
0: uh trying to evoke the Pink Panther movies. Yeah, yeah. I mean even yeah. the even the name of the diamond, the Veiled Leopard. I mean that, that evokes the Pink Panther diamond.
1: Yeah, I got to admit, it did nothing for me. And I'm usually the big finished defender <laughs> and champion. For me personally, it relies on too much humor that didn't work for me. Yeah. I agree with Pat. The disappointment of not having the two teams who come from two very different doctors meet, even for three minutes at the end. I think it promises that. The way the story I think they see each other like
0: across the room or something. Yeah, and the they, problem yeah.
1: the problem is if they could have established at the beginning that they just miss each other and they never see each other and we rewind time and see what each of them mm-hmm. were doing, then I wouldn't have had that expectation throughout. Oh. But the way it's structured really makes the listener think their two plans are gonna collide.
2: They barely miss each other every now and then, especially when they're trying to get into the safe. Mm-hmm. But I admit that the plotting there sort of bewildered me. Yeah. I, I I wasn't quite unclear. sure like who was where at what moment. It if I listen to it a second time, I'm sure I could out. I honestly figure it don't out. quite
0: understand backstory, this is kind of uh referred to like apparently the seventh doctor recruits the fifth doctor to do this like, interference, don't keep them from stealing the diamond so we can steal the diamond. And I honestly don't quite understand why the Seventh Doctor has this plan. <laughs> I, I just, like, like... Yeah, it's convoluted. Why doesn't the Seventh Doctor just take it? You know, I mean, I, I don't know why he needs, like, this Fifth Doctor era interference. And, like, why is he crossing his own time stream to do it? It, it, it doesn't seem... It does seem like it needed another
2: draft. So it yeah. could, have, could have nailed down a lot of these yeah. details, added in some more jokes to really make things land.
0: I mean I mean you know, this is the second time I've listened to this, and the first time I, I listened to it I remembered liking it, and the second time I listened to it I didn't I, I liked it much less. It does seem just kind of frivolous in a not good way. Mm-hmm. I mean i I mean it was a free insert in a magazine, so of course it's gonna be a little disposable, but I mean it, it seemed Really disposable to me this
2: time. Having said that, I really enjoyed it. This is the first Aramem story I think that I have heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, she uh, didn't make a particular impression on me. It's uh, not a
1: good first story. I think she's a strong character if you follow the trajectory of her character arc in the audios. Yeah,
2: I, ha- I have no doubt. Uh, it's just that this one didn't shine for me. And we, But we had listened to a Hex story. We had listened mm-hmm. to The Harvest earlier, and this did remind me that... I really quite like him. I like mm-hmm. his Liverpudlian accent. I like mm-hmm. the fact that he's sort of a beta. Yep,
1: um, and that is very much the story of the audios, where, where Ace becomes sort of his doctor, and she's the one breaking him in. <laughs>
2: yeah, I really dig that. And even in a, a very slight story like this, that came through. Mm-hmm. So uh, those are the things that shine for me. And just the bubbly... It's Monte Carlo in 1966. Yeah, just, it, you just you have to work to a screw of, that up. It's right? a glass of non-alcoholic champagne. There we go. There
1: we go. <laughs> it's you know Richard just... raves Calvin hat.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, what about Time Heist then? By comparison, I suppose we. We know where we're all going to land on this, but yeah. uh, but let's uh, dig into this one a little bit. Yeah. I didn't dislike
1: Time Heist the first time I saw it, but in the context of the entire season, it, it felt like kind of in a holding pattern. Um, and so maybe I didn't pay enough attention to it, but I actually really enjoyed it more on this second viewing mm-hmm. uh, than I originally did. Or maybe it's just because it's been so long since we've seen your Capaldi. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, for my... It it wasn't like the standout story of the eighth season, but it wasn't one of the bad stories of Mm -mm. the eighth season, so it kind of gets forgotten and brushed over, I think, because of that. Unfairly, because I actually really like Time Heist uh, with the the caveat that the most secure bank in the galaxy honestly seems pretty easy to break into. Yeah,
2: nothing's (laughs) secure. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I don't think you really need to be someone on the level of the doctor to break into this bank. Yeah,
2: I think Lloyd's of London is probably yeah. you know, not going to insure that bank.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it all comes down to how often do they have solar flares? Mm-hmm. Is it once every thousand years or yeah. is it Still, once th- a month? Your disaster
2: planning like <laughs> should really uh, <laughs> and, include and, solar and, flares. And, and, yeah. you know, yeah.
0: I'm kind of spoiling the story here a bit, but the Doctor breaks into the bank beforehand on his own to plant this stuff.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, really, this is one that... No, well, the, that's in the
1: story, is that he flew in with the TARDIS, mm-hmm. but then he couldn't during the solar... But you're right. Now, why, why would not he do everything that he did yeah. could he during just take, the solar flares? could he couldn't just he take just the lady out right and the... The woman in charge... Calabraxos. Calibraxos calls him presumably tells him everything that happened, that means he has to use the TARDIS before the solar flares Mm -hmm. to set all that up because it's already happened. I think it's a version of the bootstrap paradox where it's already happened, so he has to fulfill what has happened.
2: That is a plausible explanation. It's also a troubling one in terms of the Doctor having to fulfill his own previous storyline, which is not something that we get into a lot. And Doctor Who,
1: but it's not, its his future storyline. He's just getting the information from Lady Calbraxis so for, 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 whatever her name. So
2: is. that so that he can rescue the last two members he, of the species. Yes, yes.
1: yes, in the future.
2: Yes. All right, we'll we'll go with that for now.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, but I, um, I, I think the big thing that really makes me like Time Heist is just all the stuff with the teller. The story of the teller, uh, I thought, was very emotionally involving. Actually. Even though he seems like the most monstery of Doctor Who monsters at first, but then you find out more about what he is, and
2: yeah. Well, he looks sympathetic right from the beginning because he's in that Guantanamo orange jumpsuit yeah. with the chains on him, and so you know that there's some element there that's not supposed to be completely villainous. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of elemental story mm-hmm. that. There's a person who has been enslaved because otherwise the person that they love is in danger and our heroes are going to come in and we're going to save you. Mm -hmm. We're going to do that. And so uh, I'm not resistant to that as – awful yeah. and cynical as I am in my in my, in my dark heart, I, I, I like that. That's... And in the
1: context of season eight, it is a nice story in that the 12th Doctor gets to the end of the story and realizes, oh, I did a good thing. This is the season, whether you like it or not, he's questioning, am I a good man? And he realizes, yeah. no, I set this whole thing up to save the last two members of this species. I did a good thing.
2: In retrospect, that might be the best part of it, because this is that early 8th series period where he's both kind of helpless, Mm -hmm. where it seems like, oh, he can't do anything when uh, Saber dies or or appears to die. Mm -hmm. And then also heartless. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, well, now we have to prioritize. we're Blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to give you the the euthanasia thing. So if you happen to die. And so this is uh, what... uh, Tony, of course, really objected to in this season was mm-hmm. that he was just uh, he was just a monster, he was mm-hmm. just a heartless monster. Uh, Peter Cabaldi is great at this, but like we've said before, this attitude would have been more appropriate for a doctor coming right off of the time war, not yep. after a yep. post day of the doctor catharsis, so uh, retrospectively. Maybe it works a little better that the future doctor was able to save the people, yeah. and and Sabira and Sai are yeah. not dead, and I'm just like timey wimey all over. Yeah, now. yeah,
1: yeah. And I also think those supporting characters are simple. Uh, they're drawn with big strokes, but they're well cast. I like they're them. very appealing, yeah. and it is so nice to have them live. That little scene where they're eating takeout in the TARDIS and laughing is a really nice tiny scene. Yeah. Avengers. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. It's really great. And I also love the performance. Of Peter Capaldi when he gets it when he has his aha moment when he's in when he's figuring out who the architect is and he hits the gong and he's just so <laughs> pleased with himself um, but because he, he he portrays it not like the cockiness of the earlier new series doctors it has this
2: thing like I needed this yeah we'll just <laughs> thank we'll just you stipulate that <laughs> yeah. right like we like Peter Capaldi's performance in. <laughs> All of the scenes. yes, <laughs> yes. All the scenes, you're right. We don't need to
1: go through them. <laughs> They're great. I, I,
2: I like the fact also as well that this is a wonderful one-shot role-playing game adventure for four players. Yes. One of you is the doctor. One of you is the companion. One of you is the enhanced human. One of you is the master of disguise. Now you have to break into the most secure bank in the galaxy. Go. <laughs> it would be a wonderful four-hour thing to just it,
1: do. Also in the second... Viewing reminded me a lot of like a Seventh Doctor story. I was suddenly imagining it done on cheap video with lesser effects. (laughs) But it does seem like uh, those Andrew Cartmel type of stories they were moving toward. And that, uh, well, obviously those are the stories that influenced the new series. So that's not a surprise. Uh, But this one really felt like it to me. The the Seventh Doctor orchestrating the heist.
2: Would have been nice to have seen another Seventh Doctor series to -hmm. see if they could have done stuff like this. Yeah, but now we have to see it sort of disintegrated within novels and new series mm-hmm. stuff. Uh,
1: but. so yes, I think the final verdict is a little obvious here.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, it's it's time heist.
2: Yeah, but I time I'm heist gonna, for sure. Yeah, I yes, I'm with you. Uh, but you know, in a minority opinion, I really liked the Veiled Leopard. As slight as it is, I dug it. So
0: it has its diggable
1: mm-hmm. qualities, but. Definitely, time heist <laughs> definitely has more boob jokes than time heist. So yeah, <laughs> there's that. Give me a lot to think <laughs> about. A <laughs> lot, a lot of, of Dalek bumps.
0: <laughs> well, folks, I guess that about wraps it up for another episode of the old "Get Off My World." But uh, before we go, we need to check the old randomizer to see uh, what the randomizer. Randomizes for us next time.
2: The March of the Gladiators, <laughs> really? <laughs> okay, let's
0: end it right about there. Okay. <laughs> the Faceless Ones. Ooh. A second Doctor's story, uh, which I believe is all missing.
1: <laughs> nope, there are two episodes. There are two exist. episodes of it.
0: Okay. <laughs> So it's going to be the faceless ones, and in Arcs of Infinity, we'll be discussing the next box set of the Eighth Doctor Doom Coalition Four, final one, the final one, and uh, I'm going to be looking at the for climax. There
1: better be some serious doom in this. <laughs> one. There
0: better be some actual doom. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And so, until next time, I'm Kelvin. I'm Pat. I'm Joshua, and we're saying, yeah. Get off my world. You know, when i was living with Kari we would always do dog voices at each other <laughs> like like she'd come up to me and say something like you will take out the garbage or you will be exterminated and i'd go i obey
1: <laughs> take the <guard> garbage <laughs>